0: Ride at Disneyland believe it or not is Peter Pan and um, I just love it was a childhood favorite story and I love it when you know Peter just grabs Wendy and hauls her out the window and off she soars into the air and then the ride at Disneyland captures it so beautifully because you take off and then you're just flying over London and you see Big Ben all lit up and you see the little cars driving along the streets of London and it's just beautiful. You fly over Never Never Land, and I just love it. So my family all know that the tradition, when we go, which we haven't been for about, I don't know, over a decade, but is we go there first to Peter Pan, and we go there last, because I need my dose of Peter Pan. So the author J.M. Barrie actually writes about Never Never Land being a place where of eternal childhood, where you never have to grow up. And Peter Pan specifically wants to stay in the world where there's no real responsibilities. Peter Pan says to Wendy, the moment you doubt whether you can fly, you cease forever to be able to do it. And maybe that's a quote relevant for me only, but I have this burning desire to fly, like in this body, not in an airplane, (laughs) this body. And I am hoping, praying, (laughs) that our resurrected bodies will be able to fly, why not? God's gonna do amazing things, so why can't I do what Peter Pan does (laughs) without the pixie dust? And um, so anyway, that's maybe for me more than anyone. Here's the quote, another quote. Peter says, just think to Wendy about flying, just think happy things in your heart and you will fly on winds in Never Never Land. Fantasy is beautiful. But it's also just an escape, isn't it? We escape into a novel, a movie, a ride, a place, and we go to this kind of fantasy world. And it's beautiful. We want, I think a lot of us want, an alternate reality. We want to run away from problems, from frailties, from failures. We want to ghost when we get challenged. You see, we don't live in that fantasy world. We don't live in never-never land. And if we did, if we try to stay and live there, actually, we will lead a very sad life. We will lead a very um, small life. And we will lead a very, uh, what is it, selfish life. We really will. If we try and live in never-never land, never growing up, never take on responsibilities, we will live a very sad, small, reduced, selfish life. And basically, we'll remain immature. And this immaturity will ultimately damage our relationships and our soul. And I enjoy fantasy. I really do. I love our little well, not Chris, (laughs) but our little family, we love fantasy, so we read these fantasy books, and it's wonderful to disappear into these worlds that don't exist. But I don't want to be married to Peter Pan. No. (laughs) I really, really don't. I think Peter Pan would make a really horrible husband. Okay, so Peter actually returns to Wendy, and she is now a mother. She's grown up, and she's a mother, and Peter is... Sad. But guess what? Wendy isn't. And unfortunately, here's my transition. Much of our Western church culture has been created, has created the pseudo narcissistic faith, where it allows me to stay in my infantile, immature state, and I don't get challenged. Faith in Jesus has become our escape rather than a means for transformation. Dallas Willard writes, have we somehow developed an understanding of commitment to Jesus Christ that does not break through to His living presence in our lives? Without question, that has occurred and with heart-rending consequences. Hebrews comes as this beautiful challenge to all of that, to a new and a better way of living. The gospel opens up a glorious new hope for our humanity. Without this new priest, we are beat before we begin. Let's read Hebrews 8 together. We're going to read verse 1 and 2 and then skip to 6 to 13. 13. Hebrews 8. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. And then verse 6, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, and this is a quote, "'The time is coming,' declares the Lord, "'when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel "'and with the house of Judah. "'It will not be like the covenant I made "'with their forefathers when I took them by the hand "'and led them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a Or a man, his brother, saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Thank you for that beautiful word, Lord. This passage really gives us a very clear picture of the gospel, with Jesus now as our new high priest, inaugurating this new covenant and offering all of us, every single person on planet earth, new life. The Jewish faith is a covenant-based faith, and it revolves heavily around the priesthood. In fact, chapter 9 goes into it even more, so next week I'm sure we're going to have a feast on that. but. Priesthood is the key because the Old Testament priests would minister on behalf of the people to God. So once a year, the high priest, he would take the blood into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, firstly for his own atonement and then for the atonement of the people. So the sanctuary, this Holy of Holies, was not open to everybody. It was only open, at that time of the year, to the high priest. So there was this kind of divide between the outer and the inner tent, and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. In Christ, due to his death as the perfect sacrificial lamb and his resurrection into new life in this new role as the new high priest. He now sits at the right hand of God and it says he intercedes on our behalf. How beautiful is that? He intercedes for you and for me. This is incredible news. You all look a little bit um, blasé about that news. <laughs> it is awesome news. However, the problem was not just this external barrier, Okay, so that the curtain that separated Okay, which Jesus has now taken away because he's now the high priest. But it was an internal barrier too. It was our Adamic nature. It was this inability on the inside to be changed and renewed. And Hebrews 8 verse 10 changes all of that. Listen again, I will put my laws, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I thought about it this afternoon. How close do I have to be to write something? An arm's length. Like, that's it. If, if, if I'm further, I cannot write anything on that piece of paper. God says, I will write them on their hearts. That's how close he is. He comes in really close, and he writes it on your and my heart, this new story, this new narrative, this new life. This internal barrier is, oh, sorry, as is is Bunyan says, it's a wounded conscience. It's the deepest part of us, and I think it is mind and soul. It's like your psyche. It's the very core of you, your heart and your mind. And this new covenant offers full and complete inward redemption. That's what it's offering. It's saying you can be made new. We are forever taken out of Egypt and our slavery to sin, and now God renews our minds and remembers, he chooses to remember our sins no more. That blows my mind always, because I remember my sins, and I'm the one who will bring out the whip and beat myself up often. But I have to remind myself of this. He remembers my sins no more, he chooses to forget. This new covenant is a transforming reality. It's not just absolution from sin. It's transformation into a new heart and a new mind. This transformation only begins as we recognize the reality of who we really are. See, because we've gotta know where we're at. We have gotta know that we need God. We've gotta know that our heart is wicked and depraved. We've gotta see our own brokenness to come before the throne of grace. So I'm gonna tell you a story. The first time I ever went to therapy was in my master's program when I was actually becoming a therapist. So I was 52 years old, and it was a prerequisite of the course that you had to do a certain number of personal therapy hours. So at 52, you know, I. Worked through my insurance, found a therapist, and um, was told that she was a Christian, and I went to see her. I was super nervous, super, super, super nervous, which is a good experience, and I realized why they make you, when you're training to be a therapist, to go to therapy, because you you get to experience what it feels like. So I was super nervous, but I decided I knew what I wanted to work on, and I wanted to work on my pessimism, and I wanted to work on my negative lens, because I often have this negative way of viewing things before I see the positive. I'm, I'm the girl who says, what if? What about this? I'm not like, and I'm married to the eternal optimist, and so who knows that that was like a little bit of a rub here going on, because Chris is the go-was. <laughs> He's the go, 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 and I'm the like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) So anyway, I thought, no, I'm going to work on this, this is a good one. So I went in all prepped and ready, and I told this therapist, you know, I really want to grow, I want to change, I want to learn how to renew my mind, I want to challenge my thinking, and I want to become more positive. And I laid it all out, and she looked at me, and this is what she said, she said, no, this is how God made you, and you won't change. <laughs> My eyes just got big, and honestly, internally, I was thinking, but, but I believe in the transforming power of Christ. Like, I believe He's changing me, and what the heck am I becoming a therapist for if nobody can change? Like, I went to this, and I actually started to cry like really cry because it was the most devastating (laughs) news I'd ever heard. I was like, what? So I just want to be clear. I do not believe as a Christian and I do not believe as a therapist that your personhood, who you are, is static. What is this gospel all about if that's the truth? And I don't believe in, oh, that's just the way I am. Just accept me the way I am. I don't believe in that message. I think that's a super immature message. I don't believe in, oh, that's just the way they are. Just accept them, no. Lesson learned, okay, be very careful which therapist you choose. If you choose to see one, I am serious, I'm very serious. Be very careful, get recommendations. Have a phone call with them. Ask some key questions before you go in, and open your soul to some super unhelpful things that are contrary to the Word of God. I'm being absolutely serious. I think we, we, we all too, um, what's the word, naively, take our lives, our soul, this very heart and mind thing going on, into hands that are not necessarily gonna do us good. In the therapy world, there's a pretty famous line by M. Scott Peck, an amazing man mental health is the ongoing process of dedication to reality at all costs mental health is the ongoing process of dedication to reality at all costs you see we have to start getting super honest with ourselves and when we live in that fantasy world of peter pan never having to grow up staying in our childish ways we never have to face and be honest with ourselves. The reality of our relationships and our role in them, is there peace or is there turmoil? Facing our personal reality is so important as the first step towards maturation, actually transformation, and Peter Pan refused to do it. As believers, the journey begins at our moment of our glorious salvation, and then it's an ongoing journey of being transformed. You see, your status changes. Those of you who don't have a relationship with Jesus, you can totally change. Tonight, you'll hear my story, tonight can be the night where your status moves from sinner to saint. You are taken out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. but your state, so your status changes, you are renewed and born again, but your state is one of being transformed into his image. It's an intentional, ongoing journey. I actually love my job as a marriage and family therapist. Actually, I think it's more my calling, because I really believe I'm called to bind up the brokenhearted, um, proclaim freedom for the captors, and comfort those who mourn. And so, I love what I do. Sometimes gets... Quite weighty, but I love what I do. But sometimes something I observe with every single client is the importance of self-awareness in this growth journey, in this maturation process. If you are not self-aware, it takes a lot longer. So it's a really important part of transformation. This is what M. Scott Peck goes on to say in the road less traveled. Some of us will go to extraordinary lengths to avoid our problems and the suffering that they cause, proceeding far afield from all that is clearly good and sensible in order to try and find an easy way out, building the most elaborate fantasies in which to live, sometimes to the total exclusion of reality. Okay, I want us to be real tonight. Um, We're talking about, you know, being really real, so I want to be really real. Will you join me in being honest about yourself? Yeah. Okay, a few little volunteers. <laughs> <laughs> Chris says, you'll be honest about me. Okay, I'm gonna be really honest about me right now. And I want to tell you, this is how it often looks. I want you to sit there and kind of be honest about you. So I want to be right. You see, I believe there's a right and there's a wrong. I'm a pretty black and white person. Chris isn't. So. There's a problem there. He's pretty much like he can live in this gray zone. I want to be right, okay, it's a problem. I don't want to take the fall. I don't want to be blamed for the argument that we're in, neither does he, actually. (laughs) But I want Chris to feel bad so that I can feel a little bit better about my small little role in this argument. When I adopt this defensive stance, the game is on. See, when I adopt this defensive stance, what what is his option? If I'm always right, what does that mean? And now the game is on. The defensive posture I've taken, then I start, well, this is how it goes. It starts disintegrating and deteriorating. And I enter an emotional state of reactivity. I call it the low road, and so does another book I'm gonna read. This is when the integrating function of my prefrontal cortex, my logic and reason, kind of goes out the window, and I start reacting emotionally, completely. Some of my other brain functions take over, like the amygdala, just kind of the fight, flight, freeze takes over. So I'm gonna read, he puts it brilliantly. It's a book called The Anatomy of the Soul, and it's by Kurt Thompson and he's a psychiatrist, and this is how he describes the low road. I really want you to listen to this. This is kind of super important. We find ourselves on the low road, metaphorically, the prefrontal cortex has come unhinged. Neurologically, it has become less efficiently connected to the other parts of the brain that are sending messages to it like, slow down, Merrill, slow down, take a breath. On the low road, we do not regulate our bodies. We do not attune to others' emotional states. Our emotions are unbalanced and our responses are rigid. We leave no space for empathy and therefore limit our insight. Fear becomes our gyroscope, overwhelming our capacity to attend to our bodies and making it impossible for us to intuit internal and external situations with wisdom. Ultimately, this leads to poor moral choices. This entire process gives new meaning to the expression, he flipped his lid. Okay, I hope you see that. I just want to say, this is what I want you to see. When we get triggered, okay, that's the term you can use. When you get triggered at an emotional state by something, and you know what, it could be as ridiculous as the milk was left out. Um, It's usually a small thing, but when you get triggered, you begin losing logic and reason, and you go to this distressing emotional state that starts dysregulating, and then we damage and hurt others. This is not okay. Meryl, this is not okay. See, I gotta preach this to myself just this week. I had a really bad day, Chris and I, I think it was both of us, yes, had a, I had a bad day with you, whatever it was, and and everything inside of me was wanting to go to this complete dysregulation. In fact, my, my brain, I'll just be really honest, was saying to me, you can't get up and speak on this, because you're not being transformed. Look at you. That's where I was going. So." Um, This is not okay. It's not okay to say, it's just the way I am. It's not okay to say, if you didn't, then I wouldn't. If you didn't do that, then I wouldn't react like that. It's not okay. Those are immature responses. We have to be brave enough to do the deep dive and go to those painful places. We have to look to see and understand what the heck is going on on the inside. What are those injuries? What are those triggers? M. Scott Peck goes on and says, when we avoid legitimate suffering that results from dealing with problems, we also avoid the growth that problems demand from us. The general general tendency of our hearts and our minds, our prefrontal cortex, is towards deceit and hiding from truth. We wanna hide from the truth when it looks scary and it's pointed. Adam and Eve in the garden, no it was the snake, no it was Eve, she, she gave it. We blame others and we hide from ourselves and our own error and we disconnect from ourselves and others. Jeremiah 17 puts it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I the Lord search the heart he searches the heart and examines the mind to reward anyone according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Joe Snyder, you preached on Hebrews. You did an outstanding job. I listened to your message. And if what, what chapters was it, three, four, no, four, five, five, six? You should go and listen to that. Joe really did a really good job. And in fact, we should all listen to the Hebrews talks. I think they've been amazing. But the same as joe the passage that blows my mind is this one it's in hebrews 5 8 and 9 it says although he was born sorry although he was a son this is jesus this is speaking about jesus although he was a son he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him okay i don't know about you but that that jesus learned obedience from what he suffered? That blows my mind. See, Jesus suffered and he faced persecution, hardship, suffering, betrayal, temptation. He was familiar with our struggles and yet even Jesus had to learn obedience through what he suffered, through the pains and the struggles of life. Please hear this. Don't gloss over the fact that even Jesus as fully human He had to learn how to be obedient. This means that obedience to God wasn't natural. It wasn't just, oh yeah, Jesus was fully obedient, it was easy for Jesus. No, he had to learn obedience. Choosing obedience to God wasn't automatic. Choosing forgiveness over anger wasn't easy. Jesus learned to be wronged and not get defensive. Jesus trained himself to be silent In the face of accusation. He was betrayed, and yet he called that man friend. He prayed and lived, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. He was diligent, disciplined, and it was a choice. Dana actually spoke on this, and she said his divinity didn't trump his humanity. It was such a good uh, talk on, on this. His divinity didn't trump his humanity. He was fully human. Why is this important? He knows what I go through. Just when I was out walking this morning and praying, I felt the Lord say, Meryl, I know the struggles that you go through to stand here. Because it's not easy for me. It's not not like, yeah, I'm going to preach. It's like, oh, do I really want to? This is too hard. It takes too much from out of me. I mean, that's where I live. Some of these others don't. <laughs> but that's where I live. But I felt the Father's close, intimate present presence with me saying, it's okay. I know the sacrifices you make. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, my heart and my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the path everlasting. This is a beautiful, brave prayer of David's. A man dedicated, I believe, to reality at all costs. Like, search me, oh God. Try me, know my heart, see if there's any wickedness in me. Like, that's the deep dive we've gotta do. God, search me, know me. <clears throat> okay, I wanna just tell you about two experiences that I've had with God that were absolutely life-transforming kind of in an instant, because I do believe in the supernatural transformation of God, as well as the long road of obedience, okay? So when the first one was my salvation, um, I was 15, that's when I met Chris, I went off to this church camp, got there, I hated every single thing about being there. I hated it the minute I got out of the car, and I was determined I was not going to stay there for the weekend. I hated the girls I was rooming with. I hated everything about the camp. I just, I did not want to be there with every cell in my body, and I decided I'm going home. So I made a plan to go home on Saturday morning. And basically, that Friday night, for the very first time, I heard the beautiful message that God wanted to know me. And I found myself going up to somebody, him actually, him, this man. I went up to Chris, because he was the one who gave his testimony, and I asked for him to pray for me to accept Jesus, or Jesus to accept me. And I prayed that prayer, and in an instant as I prayed that prayer, everything changed. I walked back to that same room with those same girls, and we were like hugging and kissing and crying, and oh Jesus is so good, you know. And everything changed, my heart, and my mind were transformed by the indwelling presence of Jesus so i believe in that the second one happened 6 years later chris and i had been married for two or th- uh, for three to four years <clears throat> and chris felt god call him into full time ministry wanted to be a pastor and i was adamantly against that i was like heck no i married a school teacher we both school teachers we're going to do this thing we had, I mean, we we're going to be in church and serve Jesus and all of that, but we are not. I'm not going to be in full-time ministry. So I was like, kicking and screaming. We go to this prayer meeting in another church, and while we're praying, this woman says, "You know, I've got a word from the Lord," and I'm doing that because literally my heart was like, "Oh no, 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 no! You can't con me like this!" Because basically, this word was exactly me. Like. Nailed it, like exactly me. You're resisting God, you're resisting a calling. It was, it was, And I was like, Chris told somebody about me. <laughs> and what the heck? Like, I think this is sacrilege. You're not allowed to say, God says. If it isn't God, I mean, I was, that's my world. I was like, hard as anything. I was standing there like. <gasps> <laughs> and um, this little voice, which I've learned to listen to, inside of me just said, What if it's God? Just this little voice. And I found myself reluctantly saying, God, if it's you, then you break down the walls. And in an instant, I started sobbing. Gosh, that's decades ago, like decades ago. and still hits me. I started sobbing as God just took every wall down. And I walked out of that meeting, mind and heart completely changed. And this man was grinning from ear to ear as he knew God had changed everything. And that's when we went into full-time ministry. So, you see, I believe, I firmly believe in the supernatural transformation of God. I believe there are moments that God sovereignly comes into our lives and he transforms us in an instant. And I've had one or two others. However, I, I do wanna say more often in my life, the more often pattern has been that I've learned obe- obedience as I've bowed my knee and opened my hands. Like, yes, those moments are there and they're glorious and they, 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 they are so treasured to me, as you, I think, can see. But I know when I open my hands and I say, Lord, not my will but yours be done, and I bow my knee, that's when I start to experience those moments of transformation. When I say no, Meryl, not that immature response, not that immature heart's desire, not the easy way out, and I face my weakness and I'm willing to say, God, I'm gonna choose in this moment to respond differently. We now have this high priest who doesn't just grant absolution, as I said, but invites us and empowers us to grow, to heal, to change, to transform, to basically become more like him. That's what you and I, that's why this is such good news. Can you all tell your faces that? (laughs) Because you're just looking so serious at me that I feel like, oh, maybe I'm boring and doing a bad job, but it would be nice to see you smiling because this is unbelievable news. Like we are invited to grow. We're invited to change. We're invited for this beautiful journey of growth as a person from one degree and You know imperfection into becoming more and more and more like him this is good news that's why the gospel is so beautiful and it's geared to broken people isn't that beautiful like church is never was never meant to be a place quote unquote where you have it all together and somehow it's become that in certain circles where you You're expected, if you're in church, that you've got it all together. No, no, this is a place for broken people, just like you and me. This is a place for people who are struggling, for people who are struggling with serious sin or pain or brokenness. This is what it's meant to be. But it all begins with this really deep dive, reality at all costs. There's a beautiful song, Dana so graciously learned it, that we're gonna sing at the end of uh, my talk, but it goes like this. So high upon his shoulders, safely brought this far, helper of my helpless soul, the king of broken hearts. His love is like the mighty ocean, his love for me, will never stop. His arms are strong enough to carry me through it all by the grace of God. That's how we do it. It's not white knuckle, grit your teeth, be different, be strong. No, it's by the grace. It's by this glorious God who chooses to carry me, who says it's okay that you that you fall, I'm here to pick you up. Our most basic human need is to love and to be loved. And the beauty of the gospel, and especially this Hebrews, is that Christ fully demonstrates his love for us. Jesus actively and ongoingly as our high priest is interceding before the Father's throne For us to find grace to help us in our time of need. Like he's praying for you and me. He's praying for me. Even now, I think he's praying for me. Zephaniah 3 says this. It's a beautiful scripture. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. That's our God, He is the author and completer of this race. Joe said God will finish what he began. That's our hope, he will finish in you and me what he has already begun. He completes that which is lacking. Okay, really to kind of wrap it up, how do we change? How do we transform? What are some of the pieces that need to be there? We've kind of touched on them, so it's kind of a recap. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit at work inside you and me is an incredible, he is the agent of change. He's the one who speaks to me and says, Meryl, maybe be a little bit ten- tender with Chris and not defensive, but am I listening? Am I willing to listen? Today, if you hear his voice, I think Brian could did this, do not harden your hearts, in Hebrews 3, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He is near, he's writing on your heart, he's near, he's right here, he's wanting to write these beautiful new truths on your heart, so listen. Number two, oh yeah, number two, time in the word, Hebrews 4 says this, for the word of God is living and active when we read his word it is living and active it's sharper than any double-edged sword it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joint and marrow it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart can you see how it just keeps coming in the thoughts and the attitudes of heart this knife that is the word of god is actually a scalpel i think brian did say this that brings healing into those painful places like when he comes with his scalpel into those painful areas it's to bring healing because when he cuts what did i write you i thought i where did i go anyway (laughs) i don't know where it's gone he brings healing um susannah wesley okay she had 10 kids but actually she gave birth to 19 and nine of them died in infancy like Super tragic, but she was the mother of John Wesley. That was one of her children, John Wesley. So basically, this is what she would do. So she was the pastor's wife, her husband led a church. She had 10 kids that she was homeschooling, and you would often find Susanna Wesley with her big apron pulled up over her head, so she was in this little cocoon, and she would that was her tent of meeting and all the kids knew when she was in that place they did not disturb her except if there was an emergency (laughs) and i'm glad she added that piece with 10 kids maybe and so she had this like thing and she would pray and she'd read the word now that challenged me because i know a lot of us are busy in fact who's still doing the reading through the word thing okay i was until two weeks ago confession i really was i was on track And then these last two weeks, I've just fallen off the wagon badly. So I need this. Like, we can't afford not to be in the presence. We can't afford not to pray. We can't afford not to be in the Word. I can't, I definitely can't. The third one is self-awareness. Like, this is how we change, okay? this, This deep dive into reality at all costs. Now, I've done a lot in there, so I'm not gonna do it again. I'm gonna tell you one story I was an associate marriage and family therapist, which basically means I, wasn't, I, didn't, hadn't, I hadn't done the test. I was still getting my hours and training. And I had this one client come in, and I think this is gonna crystallize what I'm trying to say. She came in, she was in her late 50s, and she sat down, and this is her opening line. She said, you know that I'm not gonna go anywhere near my childhood. We are not going anywhere near there. So what did I instantly know? Okay that's where the pain is and that's where all the healing is going to happen. And so we took a long time because she wouldn't go there. She wouldn't go there. Here's the the I think the beautiful part. She's been with me 5 years almost. Because she had to build a whole lot of trust. Super super traumatic, super traumatic childhood. So she had to build all this trust before she would go there. But she's I'm so proud of her. She has done She's done the deep dive into the deepest, deepest, deepest pain. And a couple of months ago, um, we were doing a guided imagery, and it was all around like the ugliest part of her. Like the the part of her, literally, she actually said it's like a demon, like it's the ugliest part of her. And we're doing this guided imagery, and she starts crying. And this is all her doing it, like I'm not. And I mean, I'm guiding her, but that's about it. And she says this. She says, Meryl, I can't believe it. She said, Jesus didn't turn away from that ugly part of me. In fact, he came in really close, and he touched it. How many of you know she is experiencing this beautiful transformational journey as Christ is coming near and he's writing a new narrative on her heart and her mind. Please commit yourself to search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Invite him in. Okay, fourthly, community. This is the last one. Courage to live in an honest, transparent place. You know, we are part of a midweek, and we were leading it up until just a little while ago. And, um, and um, I saw his tenderness, sorry, if you're wondering what this little, commu- I saw it. he looks like he's tender, and so it made me tender. Um, so we were leading this beautiful midweek. And we, we needed to hand it over. And it's, Chris and Wendy are just glorious and they're doing a way better job. They are phenomenal. And um, we handed it over and I said to Chris, here's the condition. I'm, I'm okay to hand it over. I do not need to lead this thing. I do not need to be in there. But I wanna be there. You know why? Because it's where I can get prayed for. It's where I can be vulnerable. It's where I can say, I'm having a rough week and I'm actually exhausted, and I don't wanna be a therapist anymore, and I need prayer. It's where we can go and say, I'm sick, would you pray for me? It's where we can go and say, I'm really struggling with my one child who's gone off the rails, would you pray for me? I'm struggling because I really wanna be married, whatever it is. That's why I wanna be there. They're amazing people, I love them to bits. And I love that we get to go deep. Community at its best. Proverbs fifteen, verse thirty-one says this: "He who listens to a life-giving rebuke will be at home amongst the wise." He who listens to a life-giving rebuke. Now, I was a young pastor's wife, twenty-one, and um, yeah, twenty-one. And basically, I um, oh, I've lost my train of thought. Oh, there was this woman twenty years older than me, Beulah Strachan. God put it in my life to give me many, not one, many life-giving rebukes, and I am so grateful to Jesus for that woman. And that's how it looks. Sometimes you have to hear what you don't want to hear. Sometimes you have to hear the hard stuff, and it doesn't sit well with you, but that's part of this growth journey. Ask yourself, what is it like to be on the other side of me? In relationships, ask yourself, what is it like to be on the other side of me? That's a good question. Okay, I want you to close your eyes. Beulah. Oh, Beulah told me. I was complaining. I was in my 20s, early 20s. I think we had two little kids. We were leading a church. It was very busy. It was like overwhelming, and I was feeling completely overwhelmed. And I was moaning about Chris is too strong, and he's a go-getter, and I'm, you know. And Beulah looked at me, and she said, Meryl, you better toughen up because it's only gonna get harder. Did I wanna hear that? No, I did not wanna hear that. And it was the best advice she gave me because it's absolutely true. It was a life-giving rebuke. Okay, I want you to close your eyes. I wanna just take you through a moment of reflection. And what I really want you to do in this moment is just invite the Holy Spirit into your mind and your heart. And I want you to hold up a mirror to your own heart and mind as we ask ourselves, as you ask yourself and I ask myself this question, what has been the most challenging part of what I've heard? I don't want you to lose that. I want you to know that that is the Holy Spirit going there and wanting you to go there. What makes it so hard to face that? What do you feel the Holy Spirit is urging you to do about that?